Good afternoon and welcome back to the EJS show on the Liberty Block. This is being recorded live and will be available within a few hours as a podcast. We invite anyone listening to the podcast to join us live on Zoom or by phone and share your thoughts. We also invite listeners to send questions, comments, and feedback to our email address, which is ejsshow at protonmail.com. Good afternoon. Hey, everybody. Hey, guys. How's everybody doing? Steve, you forgot to tell everybody that we're missing Jody today, the J and EJS. Yes, the J and EJS is missing. So we got two Eds and a mic and no Jody, unfortunately. But for good reason. We miss you, Jody. Next week. Yeah. At least she's away for happy occasions. So that's a good thing. So I first want to get through very quickly my double standard file, which I think is going to become a really easy regular on this show. Sheldon Whitehouse, membership in an all-white beach club. Anybody want to comment? What's in the name? <laughs> I, I don't even want to imagine Trump belonging to an all-white club. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 of course, couldn't care less, but it is uh, yet another piece of hypocrisy. Right. I mean, I don't think anybody, I believe that we have the right to uh, associate with those we want to and only those we want to. However, the silence on the part of the uh, racial groups, I, I don't even know if Al Sharpton has uh, piped up yet on this one. And then, of course, well, what's my, more noteworthy, the silence of those people or the fact that that, you know, not that their critics don't, you know, not that our critics don't hold them to the same standard, but they they talk they they don't they talk to talk but don't walk the walk you know they they say they want diversity but it, it seems pretty common that these you know white liberals white wealthy liberals wall themselves up in communities that you know and not just white even you know lebron james same thing you know he's constantly talking about you know helping the blacks and you know living with black neighborhoods and white racism but he lives in a lily white neighborhood too. And all, a lot of these professional athletes do too. And uh, I don't know what's more noteworthy, the, the silence of the critics or the fact that these people actually, you know, don't walk the walk that they talk. Right. So I actually thought you were going to say what Ed Maslish usually says on our show, not the silence of the critics, but should the Republicans be driving this home more strongly? Should our side be making more hay out of it? Oh, good Lord. Now, who wants to talk about race anymore? I'm yeah, just, I, I'm just not race, there. double standards and hypocrisy and making them live up to their own rules, a la Alinsky. I mean, yeah, sure, that when it comes up, they should they should hold them to the same rules. But I don't think that should be the, the initial thrust. I mean, there's so many things that we can hang like an anvil around their necks. You know, the the crime spree that they've let on that, that they've allowed the uh, you know, the, the destruction of, of the biggest cities in this country, um, you know, defunding the police. There's so many things that we can attack them on. I don't think we need to start with hypocrisy. But one of their biggies always is making us live by our rules. So, and I can't get by without mentioning Joy Behar's inappropriate gay joke. I don't know if everybody caught wind of that one. Can you repeat it? Yes, actually I can. It was something to do with this NFL player who came out as gay and she made some comment about understanding penetration in the end zone. 
Okay, that's fine. And um, once again, <laughs> the life uh, expectancy of anybody on our side of the aisle after such a comment, no matter how much apology and groveling, would be measured in nanoseconds. And once again, so yes, double standard hypocrisy, we all know it, but I think it's always worth emphasizing it, even if only quickly. Okay, we will move right off of those subjects because they're not the most important things in the world. Everybody caught the story about this tracker app that's supposedly mostly in Massachusetts that is installing itself on smartphones? Uh, is it based on the operating system or is it some program that the government required? Not that it matters that much, but I'm just curious. I did hear that, but I didn't get the details. Is it really? Uh, I actually saw somebody within the last hour, somebody on a New Hampshire list who seemed to complain that it happened on their phone. Um, and the idea wow. of any kind of government affiliated thing having anyway now obviously i don't understand the technology involved but that would be unbelievably scary now are they tracking us um quietly on our phones they may be they may not be but this idea of them installing software on our phones without our approval would be i think earth shattering so we can table that yeah. for next week if we want but even even if it weren't a government thing i mean who would be comfortable with with Apple snooping on my on my iPhone? Who would be comfortable with uh, you know Verizon or AT and T listening to your phone calls and you know butting in when they didn't like what you had to say? I think this is more of a tracking app, and I think more to do with COVID. But I say, well, we can table it for next week when we know more about the story. But I know there's a lot of fear out there that this could be just another major step in losing control. Mike, you wanted to say something? Uh, I mean, I think this is part and parcel of uh, concerns over privacy um, that we all have. I mean, I, I just, I, I got an Amazon Echo Dot recently and, <laughs> you know, I, I have to worry about like what is actually, you know, being recorded or whatever, what kind of access they have to what you're saying with these devices. And so it, it's troubling and nothing really would surprise me uh, that they're doing stuff behind our back. So I was told probably eight to 10 years ago by a major expert in the phone security field. And I was not happy when he said it to me, um, but I had a lot of respect for him. He basically said, if you own a smartphone and you have any delusions about the slightest iota of privacy in your life, you are a wacko. He said, the minute you own one, your entire life is out there. And another guy, not quite as prominent in the field, who said he was told the exact same thing. But very quickly, the headline or the subheadline on this story is Massachusetts state officials recently announced the launch of the, quote, voluntary mass notify app, which monitors the spread of COVID-19 in the state. The only problem is the app appears to be installing itself on residents and their kids' smartphones, unbeknownst to users and without their consent. So if that is really what's going on, I think that's a whole different ball game than thinking you've lost your privacy to Google and Apple and Bezos and whoever else. As far as the Echo, you know, I have one in my closet. I think it's a Google Home. I'm a very um, quick adapter of all new technology, but that's where I drew my line because that is, I think you've heard me say before, the prequel to 1984. 
Well, I think that the smartphone is sort of the telescreen of 1984. Right. So when I say prequel, I know I've said this a lot of times before. Anyone who reads 1984 wonders, how the heck did we get here? And the idea seems to always be the government forced telescreens on us. And I realized the prequel properly written is not only did they not force them on us, we spent good money to bring them into our homes voluntarily. And all the government had to do was, was tap into it. And to me, that's unbelievable. Not just voluntarily bring it into our homes, but I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I, I can't leave my house without my smartphone. If I, if I get to my car and I, and I realize I left my phone in the house, I'll run back in to get it. Yeah. I mean, it, it's crazy. No, well, it's scary not. because you just don't know any app that you download on the phone. You don't really know what it's doing. I mean, you could download an Uber app and it's tracking everywhere you go, even if you're not requesting a vehicle. I mean, you know, so it's scary. So again, I'm not the tech guy, but I think we kind of all sort of know that big tech tracks us and spies on us, that Facebook knows every site we go to, we go to even when Facebook is closed, et cetera. And I think some of us are more nervous about government subpoenaing those things. And, you know, there was that big thing with Apple a couple of years ago when they refused to turn over a password. But if a state is actually going to install something on your phone without your consent, I still think well, that's ratcheting. As much as I'm concerned. Sorry, Steve. Go ahead. Uh, as, as much as I'm concerned about government subpoenaing those 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 things, just look what happened earlier this year when Bank of America and, and other banks were just voluntarily turning over things to the government without a subpoena. And that's why I think that this whole distinction between government and private action, I'm not saying that there's no distinction between them, but I don't think it's as big, a, it's as big a distinction as m most libertarians think. And in, in these large issues that deal with your own personal integrity and your own personal privacy, I don't think there's much, if any difference at this point. Not sure if the, if, if the question is, is there a difference or is there a perceived difference? Does it bother us more when we think it's government than when we think it's big tech? And I don't know. Yeah, I mean, in a proper society, there would be separation of uh, corporations from government. But in our society, the corporations are the government, the government are the corporations. And this is all the same people revolving. So Google knows something, then the government knows it. If the government knows something, Google knows it. So I, I, I don't see any distinction really between the two of them. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, you know, so I guess I just wonder what is the general the street is different. But yeah. You know, how yeah, obviously, the, you know, because not right. everybody in this country is, you know, has the intelligence level of the staff at EJS. So I'm curious, I'm curious how everybody else perceives it. Do they perceive one as being worse than the other? Or we've resigned to the fact that the government has whatever Google has, et cetera, et cetera. So there was another interesting story. What's that? Go ahead, Ed. Oh, just people seem to forget what... Um... Edward Snowden revealed during his, uh, you know, the, the initial uh, briefings that he gave about how the data from all of these um, corporations are feeding right into uh, uh, government information servers. And uh, it's almost like, it, it's weird. It's, you think that would still be a big story. Like, did that ever end? You know, why is no reporter ever asking that? But 
No, nobody's asking that question. Isn't that the tree falling in the forest? I guess silence is the answer. So I was gonna mention this other story quickly. A Christian nonprofit applied for tax exempt status and was refused because quote, Bible teachings are typically affiliated with the Republican party. You guys catch that story? Yeah, I did. I did. And so funny, What I, I can't imagine what they're thinking or there must be something more complicated about it that we didn't get because, you know, every Christian church in the country is like that. So I don't get, I don't- Every Christian get church what? That. In the country would fall under that, you know, alleged bias towards Republicans. Well, first of all, it's not a church. It's a nonprofit, okay? Well, churches are nonprofits. Churches are not nonprofit. My understanding, I'm not the lawyer here. Churches are under a separate clause so, for instance, churches don't file 990s at the end of the year, and churches have more protection than nonprofits. Technically, churches don't have to file for 501c3s to be nonprofit. Interesting. I did not know that. All true, except that churches are considered a type of nonprofit, but their type fits all the things you said. They don't have to file 990s. Uh, they don't, they, there's a lot fewer reporting requirements to the government, and it's all based on uh, the First Amendment. Right. I, I actually filed a 501c3 and it was a blast. And we were told over and over a church does not have to file a 501c3 because we're protected by the First Amendment. And I guess I could take the moment to mention the funniest part of filing for the 501c3 was the government came back with several questions. And one of them was, you seem to operate at a deficit. Please explain how. That was the federal <laughs> government. When I stopped, I operated a deficit, so that's fine. But yeah, I basically said I learned from the best. I learned from the U.S. Treasury. But um, yeah. Yeah, so this is a nonprofit, so they're regulated. You know, obviously, you got that Johnson Amendment thing, which is a disaster for churches. The Johnson Amendment actually found in the penumbras of the emanations where it said in the Constitution that if you support a Democrat cause or politician, you may invite them to your church and have them address your congregation but if they're Republican, they may not. And I've actually been asked many times to host politicians and I can't, but Clinton, Sharpton, um, all these people, many, many left-wingers can go into churches and talk democratic politics and that's okay. But, and as far as, you know, we've seen churches afraid to actually preach Leviticus because of what it says about certain types of preferences and orientations. And I think if they were 501c3s, I think that would be revoked for that already. I think churches are just a little harder to, um, to fight, which brings obviously to the story um, about Pennsylvania, the story about the Christian group, which is going to be allowed to remain in the foster care business at M. You're the lawyer. You want to talk about that, that case? What happened? What was ruled? Um, well, as I told you earlier, I, I actually didn't read all the opinions that, uh, what's his name? Uh, I think Alito wrote a 77-page dissent on that case. And um, basically, uh, as I recall, the, the 
uh, organization didn't uh, didn't want to allow gay couples to come and and adopt uh, be able to adopt children through them, and it involved. I think the case involved the old um, some some 1990s uh, employment decision. Uh, where uh, generally applicable laws, or no, it wasn't an employment decision, just whether generally applicable laws require exemptions for... Uh, for I think for it actually had to do with an alcohol and religion case, that original case. Which one? With an alcohol or peyote case. Right, the peyote case. Right, 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 right. It was, and, and the, the, the import of that, of that 1990 decision is uh, generally applicable laws can be applied to religious organizations without, um, without the First Amendment requiring an exemption for those organizations. Um, and I think that what the issue in the case was whether they were going to overturn that old precedent, um, but they didn't. They just, they, they, the decision, as I, like I said, I just saw it in passing, but they just, on very narrow grounds, uh, upheld, you know, upheld the right of the uh, of the organization to not service um, not service uh, homosexual couples. Um, but I don't, I, like I said, I didn't read the reasoning, so I can't right. really comment on. Well, that. you know, without reading it as much as I know about it from the little I've read, and I know that originally it was wonderful news to get a nine zero decision, but a lot of the legal folks on this side of the aisle are not at all happy with it and feel like they dodged another one and punted on another one. And I, for one, as a lay person, can never understand why something generally applicable can wipe out something that's in an amendment because it wipes out something that's not in the Bill of Rights. I, to me, the logic of that escapes me. Well, I mean, it's sort of like, you know, if the church is, you know, if the church hires someone you know, does the, does the employee, you know, is the employee covered by unemployment insurance or does the church get an exemption for that? Which is I really think. different than using, than staying a church open during COVID because freedom of religion is expressly permitted in the constitution versus keeping McDonald's open. So the Supreme Court seems to believe if you can close McDonald's, you can close a church, but one is in the Bill of Rights and one isn't. So it's very, very difficult to understand how they make that. Well, work. And that, but that's and that's actually the, the, the real issue that, the, you know, we sort of get whipsawed. Right. I mean, when when uh, when it's the left that's looking for an exemption, they always seem to get it. But when when it's on our side, we don't get one. And, you know, the law, the, the double standard that you're talking about at the beginning of the show applies to the law, too. Right. I mean, if the Constitution can protect the left they use it. If it doesn't, then they find an exemption for it. I mean, that's just the way, that's just the way the, the, the reasoning goes these days. Right. And that's after three hard won seats on the Supreme Court. Go ahead, Ed. I, I think that, um, and I, I could be wrong on this, but I think we have um, the Bush crime family to, to uh, thank for this. I, I, as I understand it, the, um, the social services the government social services have been instructed to uh, not discriminate between religious and non-religious organizations to um, contract with to do whatever their social services are. So, uh, and that was because um, I think in the 
you know, in the olden days when we were young, um, the government social services would not contract with churches or church affiliated groups to provide social services because that was supposedly an, a um, violation of, of the separation between church and state. And that got changed. I think it was Bush one, might've been Bush two, might've been Bush uh, the younger. Anyway, um, so the social services now contract with, uh, with churches and church affiliated groups to perform various welfare and you know, adoption and, and uh, foster and, and whatever missions. And th this has had two effects. The first is to utterly and completely corrupt the churches and the religious organizations as they um, are now dependent on this government largesse rather than the contributions of their parishioners. And the second thing is to um, impose the government's, uh, you know, national ideology, which currently is wokeness, on all of this, all of these contractors, including the religious groups. And so the religious groups, basically the ones that, you know, don't, aren't immediately corrupt, um, they say, hey, wait a minute, wait, we don't want to uh, foster out children to, um, to gay couples. And the government says, hey, we're paying you to do this. So, I mean, you, you do what we say, and we say you got to take, uh, uh, you know, gay couples. And the churches say, yeah, but it's against our, you know, it's, a, it's against our principles, and that's how it ends up in court. So I'm not even sure there is a right answer to this. You know, I mean, I, you know, obviously in a system where, you know, a Catholic family goes to their priest and says, uh, you know, we, we, we can't take care of our newborn baby. Could you find a foster care family for it? And the, the church looks around and, and finds, uh, you know, some a parishioner family who wants to foster the, the child. I mean, I, obviously that's fine. And if the church doesn't want to uh, have gay couples or to be honest, Protestant couples, you know, or Jewish couples, it's a Catholic church. It's a Catholic baby. They want to put them with Catholics. Um, that, that, you know, that's one thing, but I think what the government does is they force, they, they, they pay them to do this. This is a social service that would be done by bureaucrats, heartless bureaucrats, let's put it that way. And they fit, and the thinking of the Bushes uh, was that, well, maybe if we get churches to do it, they won't be as heartless. And that's probably true, except it corrupts the, um, it corrupts these organizations. And I think that's kind of what this case was about. Um, and so, you know, it's the golden rule on one hand, you know, who has the gold makes the rules, in which case the government. And it's the churches on the other hand, which say they want to do the social services according to their own principles. But yeah, we want to take their money too. So I, I'm not even sure there is a right answer for this. I mean, the churches, I believe, get gazillions of dollars for the immigration stuff as well. Yes, and it has corrupted all of these organizations for the immigration. Uh, and luckily, a lot of them were put out of business uh, in the last year. But of course, they're reformulating um, now during the, uh, the Biden surge. Um, 
but it was uh, Trump had almost entirely secured the border and, and no one was getting through. And so all of these, uh, uh, these uh, 501c3s who suck at the government teat and uh, place refugees, asylees, and, you know, illegal aliens into, uh, into communities, they all, they essentially had to shut their doors last year. Um, which I couldn't have been happier about, but that has reversed itself this year. Yeah, you know, I guess the separation of church and state goes in all kinds of funny directions. Like Ed said before, you know, in the courts, it goes one way for them and one way for us. So we have the court once again finding that poor Baker in Colorado because he doesn't want to make a transitioning cake. A transitioning cake. A transitioning <laughs> cake. Yeah, I think it's blue oh. on the outside and pink on the inside. And this poor guy, so it's like the state isn't separated from people's religion when they want to coerce against a religion, but they are separated from a religion when they want to block someone from- Well, he should make the religion. cake and, and he should make the cake out of mud and say that the mud identifies as chocolate. Actually, and I think you should write him a letter and the, tell him that. But, you know, that's why the conservatives are upset at the court for doing these, quote, narrow rulings, because that's what messed up this poor Baker, is that when they forced Colorado to back off, they had another narrow ruling, basically leaving the door open to force it. Not just leaving the door open, but they gave him a roadmap as to how to enforce it going forward. And that's what they did. And I mean, I don't want to say it's hard to believe this can, this can happen in America because it happens in America. But it's, it's pretty darn sad that one person can literally be destroyed by the full weight of the government on such a silly issue when you can go down the block. And apparently it's documented that he bakes cakes for transgenders. The only thing he won't do is bake a cake to celebrate it. As I understand it, these, there are, um, you know, agents provocateurs who, who go around uh, to bakeries and, and ask them all sorts of absurd things. Um, with the idea that uh, they will report anyone who does not give the correct answer to the human rights tribunals in these various states. Or right, and they actually have a group that translates the complaints from German, right? I would assume so. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty scary. When you get to the positive side, um, besides that 9-0 ruling, um, I know someone made a comment right before the show about moving to Florida because DeSantis has done another wonderful thing. Guilty. Uh, seemingly guilty. Uh, now, I will preface this by saying I am against government schooling altogether, but DeSantis apparently signed a bill requiring students to learn, quote, the evils of communism and totalitarian ideologies. Now, I'm not quite sure how that's measured, et cetera, but I guess in principle, it's a wonderful thing. Well, in other words, that's like teaching history. <laughs> First of all, I'm going to reject what you just said. It is teaching person story. Because if you say his on this show, that is very politically incorrect. Now, a, woman. a woman. I think that I am the oldest on this show right now, being over 45. But I did learn history and I did learn that Mao Zedong killed a whole bunch of people. And I learned a little bit about the Holocaust, et cetera. Is there anybody on this panel right now who didn't learn some of the evils of communism? I would say that um, I would say that the uh, that I did not learn uh, a lot about 
the murderousness of communism until I until I learned it myself. I, I would yeah, say I would five, say the same thing. I didn't learn it in school. I learned it on my own by reading. Yeah, Robert yeah, Conquest. I, I, it either. I think though, I mean, I, the the Santa story is a, is an important one and a good one, but I think it's you need to tie it to some of these other. Uh, school board fights that are happening around the country. I mean, Loudoun County, I don't know if you saw, but uh, right they, they arrest. They had the sheriffs in for, for their last meeting of the year last, uh, last night. We're recording this on Wednesday, June 23rd, and I guess it was Tuesday the 22nd. Uh, they, they arrested parents who were objecting to the teaching of critical race theory in the Loudoun County schools. And I, I think DeSantis is just you know, one step above those parents. I mean, he's he's acting in a representative capacity, protecting the, his constituents. And that's what we want our government to do. I mean, it should be done at the local level. But I have, you know, I think it's great that DeSantis is doing that. And and hopefully this is a, a sign of a larger movement around the country. Um, Just to pick up on what Mike said, um, why do we have to tell people to teach history? That in itself is absolutely unbelievable. Well, history has taken 5,000 years to get through, and you only have like, you know, 180 hours a year to, to teach it. So obviously you have to omit things. I mean, there, there's a difference, I suppose, between omitting uh, communist atrocities, which I suppose my school district did, and teaching outright falsehoods, which is what the... Um, 1619 project and the, um, you know, the various other critical race theory uh, um, people are doing. Um, there's also the, you know, abuse of the pedagogy by, um, you know, uh, Common Core with uh, math and and uh, English, where they the, you know, if you tried to read a third grade. Uh, common core math text, you would say, what the hell is this? Why aren't they just doing addition and subtraction and multiplication and division? And if you, you know, if you look at the common core for, um, for uh, English, you know, you're not reading stories and poems anymore. You're reading uh, you know, propaganda leaflets and, and uh, you know, non, non-fiction uh, Governmental documents. A lot yeah, of governmental, governmental documents, documents are, are like, you know, even simple things like, you know, installation instructions or things like that. It's supposed to make you better at, at life. You still can't, you know, put the Ikea thing together, but uh, that's what they're reading, right? And and it just doesn't make any sense at all. And I I, I don't know what's worse, you know, I mean, that, uh, the, you know, they don't really teach critical race theory. They, they teach anti-white hatred. And, um, you know, I don't know what's worse is that is that, you know, they're, they're teaching anti-white hatred, but nobody can read Kendi's book because they can't read, you know, <laughs> I, I don't know what, I don't know what to do. I mean, it, it should just all be abolished and which luckily a lot of it, uh, you know, the 10% of the kids are now homeschooled after the COVID debacles and the abuses by the teachers unit. I mean, that's the best thing that's ever come out of COVID. So it's all of what they teach. I mean, I, I, you know, I don't know how, I, I love DeSantis doing this, but I have a feeling it's not going to quote unquote work um, because, uh, you know, the, the government, our government is not really top down as much as it is 
as it is um, bottom up and bottom up, it's all anti-white hatred and common core and whatnot. They, they have these movements and the, the teachers get on them and, and uh, you know, even if you're the government, you can't get them off. I mean, look, I, I, it's been over 30 years since I was in high school, so I don't remember all the history I was taught. I, I barely remember even learning about the Holocaust uh, if that was even mentioned, let alone the real atrocities uh, committed by, um, you know, Mao and Stalin and the rest of, of them. Um, but God only knows what they're being taught now, uh, you know, and what's being left out, let alone the fact that they're attacking some of the individuals that we've celebrated over the years, whether it's Columbus or the founding fathers or what have you. Um, well, you know, sorry to interrupt, Mike, but just... God knows what they're teaching. How about if we have all, with all this money we spend on education, how about we have cameras in every classroom and allow parents to be able to see what's going on in every classroom? And that's what happened over the last year. Yeah. And it's brilliant. It's just brilliant. And then they, the, the teachers were like, you are not allowed to have your parents watch. You know, they're just right off camera, right? Looking, <laughs> they're seeing all this nonsense. And, um, and the teachers unions are going crazy about it. And I just love every minute of the fact that for once the parents got to, uh, got to see uh, the nonsense they're talking. You know, I, I had very good history teachers in, in high school. And, uh, but I got sort of the default story, right? And uh, the default story is, is written by the winners, you know. So, but if you really want to understand history, you've got to read both the winners and the losers. And, you know, some wars obviously can't read the losers because they're, they're gone. You're, you know, it's, it's hard, hard to read. Uh, you know, it's hard, hard to read about the Spartans. They never wrote anything. So you only read about it from the Athenian perspective. But... Um, but yeah, you do have to get multiple points of view and you just, they, you just don't do that in history. So there's a lot of um, nuance with regard, to, for instance, to the American Civil War. Uh, I, you know, the, we had this uh, new national holiday, Juneteenth, which happened um, last Friday. And of course, Juneteenth is uh, kind of a big deal in Texas, but it really, isn't a big deal at all with regard to slavery in the United States as a whole. Um, and so it's, you know, there are a lot of different, if, if slavery is your issue, Juneteenth isn't like even in the top five days that you would care about, you know, unless you were in Texas, because it's a very Texas oriented holiday. Um, so does, but there's a lot of, of nuance in the whole Thing. And, and nuance is now the last thing our masters want us to discuss with regard to World War I or the Civil War or the War of 1812, you know, even the, the lead up to the Second World War. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of nuance there. So I, I just don't think anybody gets any of that nuance in high school. Um, they just get sort of the, the standard line and now they say that I think newspapers or journalism is the first writing of history. So I guess since the New York Times whitewashed Stalin, I guess they just took that writing of history. Yeah, I mean, when I was a kid, I mean, uh, we used to have microfiche. Remember microfiche? Yes. And, uh, and I would spend hours in the library um, with the New York Times looking up like 
you know, Pearl Harbor or, you know, it went, went all the way back to the 1880s. So remember the Maine and some of the World War One stuff and just looking to see what it looked like in the New York Times. That's the first draft of history, right? And of course, I didn't look up Stalin because I didn't know about the Ukrainian famine at the time. But you get the idea. It's, it's, it is kind of interesting to look back and see what was said uh, in the various wars. And, you know, a lot of what was said by the U.S. government and the propaganda machine is, is wrong, you know, has, or, or lies. You know, remember the main, that's a lie, you know. Lead up to World War I, there's a bunch of lies there, too. Of course, the Germans were idiots, but what can I say? So you just get the first draft in, uh, or you just get the winner's mythology in high school history. Okay. Um, so, I, did you guys discuss Randolph? That's what we have our New Jersey correspondent for. I think it was the Randolph School Board that wiped all the holidays off the calendar. Okay. And they I was changed actually... the name of Christmas, New Year's, and every other <laughs> holiday to day off. And now they've had to uh, back off, right, Mike? Um, I was going to mention something about that. I, was, I wasn't, um, as far as the particulars of what, which school district it was or what town it was, I didn't know. But I knew that there was a district that pushed back to get the Columbus Day holiday back to being actually Columbus Day. Instead of day off. Yeah. And I think it was Indigenous Peoples Day or something like that. Well, they actually put day off on the calendar. You know what that would do to Hallmark? I mean, maybe it's better because every card would say happy day off. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think there, there are some rays of hope. I mean, we discussed this last week in terms of Buckhead and, and trying to secede from Atlanta. Um, I think we passed, I think it was you, Steve, that passed around an article about these small secessions, mm -hmm. well, that we're seeing around the country. And I, I think those are rays, rays of hope. And it might not be a full-blown state seceding, it might be these little battles that need to be won to reestablish, you know, the, uh, you know, the liberty that we're seeking. Um, I think there's an ongoing battle. So, you know, going back to the negative, there is a story, University of Oklahoma is refusing to revise mandatory training that makes students agree with transgender ideology. So apparently they have some kind of volunteer thing but you don't pass the volunteer thing until you agree with everything they say. And then there's a great story out of Brandeis and Brandeis used to be a good school, right? Wasn't that like a, yeah. a highfalutin school? Well, their oppressive language guide, I did not know they had one, is telling people they should not use the word policeman. <laughs> and they're also encouraged to add more words or phrases that they wanna add to the oppressive language guide. Isn't Orwell dead? <laughs> He's dead, but uh, the communists live on. Oppressive language guide? I mean, they're not even embarrassed to, to have such a thing? Well, if I, if I go through an entire show without microaggressing against all you guys, I feel I've failed, basically. <laughs> not to worry. You, well, Mike already said history, so he, he got his one done. But her story is the really important thing. But I, now that there's 56 different 
pronouns. Uh, it's going to be zerstery and zistery and all of that, you know. So you had, um, I think this was also a New Jersey story, Mike, this um, beauty pageant winner who at the beauty pageant stood up and said that there's way too much censorship in schools and really blasted this whole cancel culture and you're not allowed to speak up in schools, which again, is that a ray of hope? I don't know. I mean, I didn't see that particular story, so. Yeah, Miss New Jersey. With, uh, I tend to side with beautiful women, so. Well, I'm not gonna comment on her looks because that would be objectifying and that would be binarizing and doing some other things. But I guess <laughs> there's something positive to be said about someone in a super left-wing kind of setting getting up and saying, we're squashing too much conversation, I'm not allowed to talk. You know, sort of like that Korean lady who, you know, I think we mentioned last week, who said we're becoming like North Korea. So maybe yeah. there's a little bit of pushback, but I don't know if there'll ever be enough pushback without some kind of voluntary, peaceful separation, people living among those they want to live with. And, you know, going also, back to Florida for a second, I don't see Miami-Dade County rolling over for DeSantis and saying, okay, no problem, we'll do what DeSantis wants, or Broward County. Well, speaking of pushback, though, what I mean, changing subjects a little, what do you think of the New York City primary results from last night? Um, I mean, well, the commies all, didn't win, at least at oh, the who, outset. Who, I mean, who won? I did not. I haven't been reading the news today. I've been working. Well, it, it's an undeclared situation because they have um, what is that ranked voting system where oh, you can right. put up to five choices. So the preliminary winner was the guy, the Brooklyn Borough President, Eric Adams. Oh, he's the pretty captain of the police department and he's pretty good said that he rejected the defund the police movement. Um, whether he's going to hold on to his lead after they do the whole, uh, you know, counting the ballots for the, the second choice and the third choice. And, you know, that's a whole complicated process. And they say they won't know until the end of June, beginning of July, who's, who's actually won. But um, at least at a preliminary basis, you know, when, you, when you're just looking at, the first choice vote votes, uh, the commies didn't win in New York, which I, I thought was a little bit surprising and a little bit heartening. Yeah, that's that is good news. I, I wonder. Well, on the other hand, I was thinking, you know, why don't they just use computers? And then I thought, well, no, then be, if they use computers, Biden would have won. So that he's ineligible. So <laughs> I don't know what takes so long to um no, the ranked voting is apparently incredibly complicated. <laughs> no, it's yes, it's somewhat complicated. I mean, I, there's a couple of good YouTube videos on it. Um, Australia sort of uses it, doesn't really use it, but it sort of uses it. Um, and uh, it's, it's an interesting way to vote first, say, for the Libertarian Party. But if the Libertarian Party doesn't get, you know, a majority, then to have your vote fall back to your second choice or third choice or whatever i mean Ed, i think your point is is important the way you started it off in the negative that they didn't win and i think that part is important that seemingly new york city rejected the far left now did they in any way um spread their vote out thin were there a lot of people on the left because i didn't follow this at all there were 13 <laughs> candidates and there are two 
there are two commies that have a good chance of, of catching him. Um, the last I saw, Adams had about 145, 148,000 votes. And the, there was a, a woman, uh, Maya Wiley, I think, was endorsed by AOC. She, she was the furthest left, right? Huh? She was the furthest left of the pack? Uh, that was quite a contest. There were a bunch of them vying for the most left in that case, in that primary. I'm not sure. I mean, she was pretty far left, but, uh, the, her and another woman, I think her last name was Garcia. Uh, the two of them each had over a hundred thousand votes compared to the 140 something thousand that Eric Adams had. Uh, there were a couple of others that had maybe like 50,000, uh, but most of the others only had a scattering of votes. Um, whether those, uh, you know, whether those other two are able to catch Adams, I don't know. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if they do, but um, at a bare minimum, when you're just counting first choice votes, the commies didn't win. And I was really surprised about that. And I thought that was at least somewhat positive. Again, I'm not following it. A, I don't, I think New York City's lost anyway. B, I don't vote in Democrat primaries. C, I don't think it matters what the Republicans do. And I hope I'm wrong about that. The only thing I knew about Adams, I believe he's the one who said people should arm themselves. Is that correct? Yeah. Well, I don't know if he said they should arm themselves, but he said he arms himself. And because he's a police officer, so he's allowed to carry a weapon in New York. What are his good stances? He explicitly rejects defund the police. He says that that's a stupid proposal. Um, and that we need police in order to protect law and order in the city. Um, he wants to reinstate that plainclothes uh, anti-gang unit, I think. Um, Anti-crime unit, it's called. Anti-crime unit, whatever. Yeah, yeah, whatever what else besides called. police? Do we? What else do we know about him? Besides police, I'm sure he's a commie like all the rest of them. I mean, yeah, yeah, probably. But I mean, the fact is that uh, you know, I think violent crime is was up. Some places more than double, but uh, I think overall double last year um, from the year before. So, uh, it's incredibly uh, sad that subway crime is coming back. Um, yeah, go ahead, Mike. No, I was just going to say uh, on the other side of it is Curtis Sliwa won the Republican nomination. And so I, I think this is going to be a really interesting race to watch going forward. Okay. Um, again, I'm not following it, but how many votes do you need? Like three or four to win the Republican nomination? <laughs> Listen, uh, the bottom line is he won. He's a prominent figure in New York. You know, he's been a prominent figure there for a long time. The Guardian Angels and a talk radio host. Um, that anybody, definitely qualifies. He has a chance. Player. He does. I'm What's sorry. So if anybody has a chance, he does. So I, I think it's going to be an interesting race. And what is he going to, he's basically going to run on, I'm the next Giuliani. I'm going, to, I'm going to fix the city. And considering where the city is, I have to think he has, has a shot. I, I mean, I don't know how far gone it really is in New York at this point. But if, if anybody has a shot, I think it's him. I don't think he has a shot. I mean, it's seven or eight to one Democrat to Republican in New York. But, but Giuliani won in, this, in similar circumstances, didn't he? Well, but you got to remember, Giuliani, Giuliani and Dinkins faced off twice. And they, yeah. you know, Giuliani lost the first time. 
I, I think New York is going to need to sink a little further before they turn to a Republican again. You could be right. I mean, I'm not going to sit here and predict that Curtis Lee was going to win. But I mean, you know, I mean, we, we look to the past and say, OK, well, you know, Giuliani had to run twice to get it. But different times, different circumstances after COVID and all the rioting. And you just have to wonder how much many people in the city have had enough. And they're just gonna flip. How, po how polarizing is, is Sliwa? I don't, I don't know if he's, I, I, I don't know how to describe it with him because I'm sure there's people out there that don't like him. I mean, he's been uh, all short of calling him a, a loud mouth. I mean, he's, he's, he's a prominent guy. He speaks his mind. He's been around a long time. And yeah, I think, he was married to a lefty. Uh, I mean, like I said, I, I think that, um, He's a well-known guy, and and I, I think if you have an opinion about him, it's probably entrenched. So, but I, like I said, I think if anybody has a shot, <laughs> it's probably him. But we'll see. Yeah, it's gonna. I don't know. I just don't know. I mean, anything's better than a Democrat. Could he run the city? I have no idea. Do I like his yeah. beret? That's the only definite opinion I have of him. I don't like berets. But Chris uh, Christie didn't have to run twice in New Jersey to win. He, he won. So you just <laughs> every okay. now and then in these blue states, it, go, it goes the other way. According to this New York Times article, uh, Adams uh, won every borough except Manhattan, which went to Garcia. Um, and whereas uh, Wiley uh, came in second everywhere. Uh, I guess except Staten Island. So the it, it is a kind of a, um, and Yang didn't perform well at all. Yang dropped you know, out, I, thought, I heard. I, I heard last night. No, he just conceded. Out. He was in there until yesterday. Right, but then he, he gave up, right? Which I don't know what that means exactly. Right. Yeah, his votes are still going to go to, you know, the get <laughs> distributed out. Um, if Wiley and Garcia are both uh, commies, um, of, of equal stature, then then they will, then they're, and, and if their electorate chose the other as the, you know, as their main, you know, second choice, then it, it does appear that Adams will lose. But if, if Wiley and Garcia's voters second choice were Adams or Yang, then I think Adams will hold on. It's a, it's a tough, uh, you know. Well, yeah, what happens to Yang's votes? Well, they'll go to the people who Yang's voters chose as their second choice. Right. So if he's somebody's second choice and they go to the third choice. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, That's it's called single transferable vote. I'll send you a, a video on it if you're interested in it. And a, um, uh, again, I don't think it really matters what Democrats put up in New York. If the Democrats win there, I think New York is definitely just 40 just dead. I mean, <laughs> I mean, if you, you can't go the other way after everything that's happened there in the last year plus. You get what you deserve. And, you know, well, New York is kind of in trouble because the businesses have decided that they don't need necessarily to pay all this money for the most expensive real estate in the United States yeah. when their employees could simply work from home and do their <laughs> wealth management or trading or whatever they do in New York insurance, you know, all those things that 
Um, well, you also have to wonder how many people left because of everything that's gone on. They moved to yeah. Jersey and yeah. can't even vote. I had a friend went to his. Yeah, I have a friend in finance. He he has a house on Long Island and he moved there. Yeah. You know. Now he has no say in the New York mayor, right? Well, he's still technically, I don't know. I don't know whether he voted or not. I don't get into that. But um, yeah, he has no say. So it's just, you know. I, I, but moving to Long Island doesn't solve a problem. You want to move to Pennsylvania or Florida or Texas or something. I mean, you want to move the hell out of New York entirely. Uh, that that will solve. People did. A lot of people did. A lot of people did. Yeah, I mean, some people say New York City's finished already, but then some people say it's going to make a comeback. Obviously, I have no idea. The reason people go to New York City is for you know the reason the tourists go is for the restaurants which have been closed for a year, the museums which have been closed for a year, Broadway which has been closed for a year. I mean, all these things that they've basically destroyed. Um, other than, you know, for the Madison Square Garden, which was closed for, you know, I mean, they go to, that's why tourists go there. I mean, uh, you know, people go there to work because that's where the jobs are. But if the jobs are anywhere an internet connection is, then the jobs aren't there anymore. So if you're, you know, if, if you're an actor, there's no acting. If you're a waiter, there's no waiting, you know. Your chef there's no cooking i i don't see it coming back unless they you know repudiate the covid cult and start opening up again you know i went to this wedding last week and while the staff at the venue still wore masks and i of course teased the event coordinator about it um no one of the 200 people who are at the wedding and i mean zero were wearing masks zero people where wearing. was the wedding ed pennsylvania and that's a bad that's a that's a pretty bad state i mean as far as you know they had their i think that uh famous rachel levine is their uh covid czar there for a while i mean covid is still a big issue but i think it's, it's the crime it's everything that followed black lives matter and the rioting yeah and, and i agree mike that's the big problem with new york i mean I'm in New Jersey and I don't want to go into the city because I, I don't know if there's going to be some random person who wants to attack me there, honestly. But I, I don't want to go. So who wants to live there with that? I will tell you the only metric that I have personally is traffic and it is definitely coming back. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, it's not going to completely die. Uh, you know, I mean, there's, is it going to come back to where it was? I don't think so. But, you know... There's still going to be commerce. There's still going to be jobs there. People are still going to come in. I mean, I'm sure some of these companies are going to say, we want you in, and that's it. And there's going to be no choice at a certain point, as much as some people want to stay home. Well, a lot of people haven't been paying rent for the last 15, Long 16 time. months. Um, yeah, New York real estate, they make it very, very difficult to do anything about it, way more than the rest of the country, to my knowledge. So there are people losing tens of thousands of dollars, if not much more, and there's nothing they can do in New York. But again, how is that all going to pan out? Are there going to be foreclosures? You saw California just like pay the debts of like a gazillion people or something. I think the rents or something. No, I didn't see that story. Yeah, they like made everybody whole. I forget. I think it was rents. I'm not sure. 
So what do you guys think of the story of uh, Abbott? He said he's not going to pay the legislature that walked out and apparently he's sticking by it. What do you think about that? Good for him. Okay. See, you know, I mean, good for him, but he's, he's more of a talker than a doer for me. He's more about symbolism than actually doing things. But let's see what he does. Right. No, I'm not a big fan of his, but it, it does seem like one positive thing. It's not Reagan firing the uh, FAA folks, but I, it seems like it's something sticking to his guns. I, I don't know anything about the way the Texas legislature works here in Virginia. The legislature only gets paid like twenty thousand dollars a year. As, as only a token amount. <laughs> uh, New Hampshire is one hundred dollars a year. That's a token. Well, of course, New Hampshire is much better. But they and they only work for three months out of the year, which is one of the reasons why Virginia is less screwed up. You know, I mean, if they could work for one month, it would be better. And if they could work for 30 seconds, it would be best. But um, although the know. problem with that logic only was with COVID in these states of emergency, um, the fact that legislators legislatures are not in session. Yeah. I was going to bring up what's going on in New Hampshire, which is pretty wild. You know, we had Melissa on the show several times. So they stuffed the state of emergency issue into the state budget. They also there's a Family Medical Leave Act thing in the state budget. And I think there's one or two other tricky things. And basically, the Republicans in the Senate are fighting against the so-called Freedom Caucus. So the Freedom Caucus in the House passed a budget that said, if there's a state of emergency, it will not extend without the legislature extending it. The Republicans in the Senate changed it to, it will not end without the legislature ending it. Then they made some kind of compromise that instead of it being 21 days and the legislature has to extend it, they'll make it 90 days and the legislature would have to end it. And now there is a vicious, vicious fight going on among the Republicans in New Hampshire. I mean, a lot of really not good stuff going back and forth with the don't let the good be the enemy of the, you know, don't let perfect be the enemy of the good versus why are we giving in on the biggest issue ever, the state of emergency power? And why doesn't anybody understand Now, some people are saying it besides me, the next governor is going to say racism, racism has been already declared a public health emergency. Climate change has been declared a public health emergency. So what will stop the next governor from using this power in ways that we don't want? And the Republicans, unfortunately, even some of the really good ones are tearing each other apart right now in New Hampshire. Well, and Republicans control both houses, and I know they control the governorship, right? I mean, they control uh, everything. is not really Republican. Right. But Sununu is apparently manipulated. There's only like 14 senators or something, and um, he's manipulated them. So the story goes to fight against the Freedom Caucus in the House. And it's not clear if the Freedom Caucus does not give in. It could be that the budget doesn't pass. And what the people on the Republican rhino side are saying, we have so many great things in this budget, you guys are going to let it rot. And then he's going to make a Democrat budget. And the people on the other side are obviously saying, you know, if we can't force the issue now, what are we here for? And I mean, that it's a microcosm of what happens in, you know, more national politics, but it's a pretty bloody battle among friends. It's, it's kind of sad to see. I think it 
I think it's also a microcosm of what would happen if we had a convention of states too. Thank you. Right? Thank you. I mean, if if Republicans in a in a relatively conservative state, I mean, not that New Hampshire is the most conservative state, but there's a lot of libertarians there. There's a lot of conservatives there. If the Republicans there can't get together and you know govern effectively when they're in control of all three of the branches there. I mean, what does that say about a what a convention of states would look like? I mean, it would be a free for all. Thank you. That that's what we've been saying for a very very long time. Why the convention of states? It's interesting. We met this woman in um, New Hampshire who has a small radio show, and I had a long talk with her. And she became a volunteer for convention of states like a few days before I met her. And I started talking to her about why we don't think it's a good idea, and that was one of the major points. And she got really down. She was like, I finally thought there was something great to work for. And I tried to explain to her, once you're in a room, you know, even if you say things aren't on the table, they're still going to be horse trading. And then it also hit me, which is kind of obvious in politics. The only way to get into politics and to get somewhere in politics is to compromise, which means by the time you have any power in politics, that is your modus operandi. And you're never going to stand up for anything. And it's just very scary to me. Well, I mean, the Constitution was born of some compromises, but they stood up for principles as well. You can be principled and still make rational compromises. Um, Well, if you were an anti-federalist, was those the ones who were opposed to the Constitution? The Constitution probably bargained away more than the people who sent representatives there thought was on the table. Wasn't it just about getting rid of Articles of Confederation and reworking them? And out of that came a federal government that now became what we have? Yes, but how does that contradict what I'm saying? I mean, they- Because more they was on the on... table than the huh? people, more was on the table than the people thought was on the table. Well, yeah. That's, and that's, I mean, Convention of States people all say that it will be limited to certain specific things like the budget, maybe immigration, there'd be certain limited things, but you're right, once they're in a room meeting, who knows what they're going to do. And there's always a way to twist and turn. And I mean, and New Hampshire is a great, uh, great example, but I don't know, you know, just the tiny experience I have even vicariously of people running for office. The second you declare for even the lowest office, you are forced into compromising certain positions. And if you ever want to be a speaker of the house or a party leader at any level, you've compromised more positions. And I think you lose touch with with you're not necessarily centered to compromise, you're centered to stand for something. And especially with these states of emergency, if you can't rein them in after 15 months of being locked down and masked up with no input at all from a legislature, you'll never be able to curb an out of control governor. Right, and it's not like they have to compromise. They don't have Democrats that are on the, you know, that are blocking things. They, they can't even get their own act right. together as exactly. Republicans. And that, that's really the scary, scary point. They they own everything in New Hampshire. And again, you know, it gets back to does Sununu have his eyes on the United States Senate? Is that part of it? Who knows what else is going on? You know, it's, it's funny. A year and a half ago, people would have said Sununu was a fantastic governor and DeSantis was okay. And the way I look at it, DeSantis became a fantastic governor and Sununu outed himself as a full-fledged rhino slash Democrat. To defend the great one, Mark Levin here for a moment. Um, 
his his rationale for the convention of the states is twofold. One, the this is not written anywhere, but the um, the tradition is that the convention delegates would not be the sitting politicians. Now, I understand that that's the convention and will be violated. So I mean, I'm not saying that. And, and the second thing is, what else you got? It's, it's kind of a lot. We could, you know, I don't think it's going to make things any worse than they are now. Well, you know, we wrote a tremendous, a lot about the convention of states and why it's an absolutely horrific idea. Number one, Mark Levin has said many times, and I stopped listening to him, but he said many times, this is it. If we can't pull this off, we're done, which means he admits that if we can't do it, we're done. Um, I'm willing to bet every nickel I'll make the rest of my life that Ed Powell is not sent as a delegate from Virginia. Ed Maslich is not sent as a delegate from North Carolina. And Mike is not sent as a delegate from, North, from New Jersey. And whether or not the Bushes go, they will be the ones to appoint the ones in Texas. And McCain's will be the ones to appoint them in Arizona. And Christie's will be the ones to appoint them in New Jersey. So that's one thing. Number two, one of the other major problems with convention of states is right now we're insisting, for instance, that bureaucracy is a kind of unconstitutional delegation of power. The convention of states is going to cede that point. The convention of states is going to lock into the constitution a whole bunch of things that we don't want there to begin with. So I don't think anything good can come out of the convention of states. In the horse trade, we will cede things that we never should have ceded. Well, let and me even add, can I add something to what you're saying, Steve? I hope you can. I think even in a best case scenario, it's still all that we could get would be amendments that would have to be ratified by 37 states. It's not going to happen overnight. There's, it's an incredible amount of energy and and effort that's going to be expended into this. And even in a best case scenario, there's no guarantee we're going to get 37 states to ratify. I, I just I, I see it as a potential waste of energy. Um, by the uh, way, I believe, case scenario. I believe they have 16 out of 34 states after seven years. Um, then the 16 states they have are by definition the easiest ones to get. The chances of them getting another 18 states are one in a trillion. It's just not happening. Even beyond that, if you get ratification, it becomes a question of actually adhering to, you know, the, those new amendments or whatever that we come up with. And the founders told us it's only parchment paper. We already have a set of rules in the Constitution. We don't abide by them. So it doesn't matter what we say. There are two things, though. I mean, there, and again, I don't know whether this is Mark Levin's idea or my idea, but it's one of it's some commentation of the both. The Constitution, the structural things tend to last and the functional things tend to be violated. So um, if you say the government can't do this, like Ayn Rand at the, at the end of Atlas Shrugged posits someone having an amendment, the, the government shall not interfere with production or trade or something like that. That's a, a perfect class of amendment that would be ignored immediately or, you know, part of the constitution. But the, you know, the Senate shall have two members from each state and the, um, you know, there's, there's two uh, uh, houses and the president should sign and veto or, or bill and within a certain date. So those kind of structural things, they do stay, they do 
stick around. And so the idea would be not to do anything functional because that's hopeless, but to do something structural, like in some ways have the states override the um, uh, Supreme Court when it, you know, gets crazy or in some way um, limit the justices' terms or, you know, Levin prevents, presents these arguments in his liberty amendments. And I, I tend to agree that struck, only structural amendments are, are, have any hope whatsoever. Um, How about an amendment that the Supreme Court should do its job and listen to cases between states? All I can say is the Supreme Court is the worst of all branches of the government in protecting liberties. And that from, from a historical perspective. Uh, and so the idea that, oh, our liberties are protected by the Supreme Court is, is not now true and never been true. And so we have to figure out some other reason, some other way other than, you know, bloody civil war if we want to keep the united states together you know i mean and i like the little secession idea that would be a structural change any county who wants to switch uh to another state uh can do so without the former state government's approval that's a great structural change that um that's you know that's pushing towards tom kemp's book yep he spoke about a long time ago which is a fantastic idea if it could ever happen so yeah, a little bit more freedom of movement within the states and between the states would help. Folks, we have to close shortly. Um, let's give everybody a, one last shot. Mike? Uh, I'll defer to uh, the Eds. Okay. Well, I'll, uh, I'll start. Uh, John McAfee, famous uh, libertarian and uh, tax, uh, potential tax evader, uh, uh, who uh, not, uh, a year and a half ago uh, said, quote, getting subtle messages from U.S. officials saying, in effect, we're coming for you, McAfee. We're going to kill yourself. I got a tattoo today just in case. If I suicide myself, I didn't. I was whacked. Check my right arm. He was found dead as a from an apparent suicide in a Spanish prison today. And um, from an apparent suicide. So I just quoted what he told me not 18 months ago about what happens if he's ever found suicide. So it's already tw trending. Uh, McAfee did not kill himself on Twitter. Okay. And what's the import of that? I mean, wh why did they want to kill him? Uh, he, he was, alleged tax evader and a uh, libertarian loudmouth. Ran for president twice. Um, he was being held in a Spanish prison awaiting extradition. Um, and uh, I, I think the idea, I, you know, I, I think the idea, if we were to leave the country, you know, suppose we were to move to Mexico and get a job in a, you know, a Mexican restaurant in Mexico, we would still have to pay taxes to the United States for, for 10 years, right? Or some, maybe, maybe more than that now. And that's- I mean, If you're a citizen, it's forever. As long as you're a citizen, U.S. government taxes worldwide income. Yeah, yeah. And of course, that's ridiculous. So, um, I don't know. 
I know. I, I, the, the general consensus of the Twitterati is McAfee didn't kill himself. I'm just telling you that. All right. Just like Epstein. <laughs> well, I, I, I think a big story that we haven't discussed is uh, the uh, HR1, S1 bill that um, failed cloture in the Senate a couple days ago. Um, and I think it's really noteworthy for a lot of reasons. I think, first of all, I think people on our side tend to think that the battle is won and that this is that this bill is gone. Uh, I think nothing could be further from the truth. A cloture vote is just a cloture vote. Uh, the bill was not defeated. Um, it's still available to be called. They could call for another vote tomorrow. Um, but more, more fundamentally, Schumer controls what comes up for a vote. The Democrats control what comes up for a vote, and they knew that it wasn't going to pass the cloture, that it wasn't going to get cloture. So the fact that Schumer brought it up for a vote tells me that he wanted it to come up for a vote. He wanted it to be defeated. And he wanted, I, I don't know what his motive was, but my, my speculation or my guess is I think that he was hoping to help uh he was expecting our side to get overconfident and, and let our guard down. And I think, I think I've said before, I think something as big as coming. And I think that the, the Democrats are trying to, to get us to, to get, to drop our guard. And I'm not sure what or when it's going to happen. Although I think it will be before the midterm elections next November. Um, I think it'll be sometime next year, but, um, I think it's really noteworthy that they were willing to bring it up for a vote. Um, I think, I think it's interesting that uh, Mansion and Cinema voted yes on it. Yeah, that um, struck so me all, as interesting, given that they said before that they were not going to vote for it. Say that again. Mansion at least said that he was not going to vote for HR one. So the question is, why then did he uh, vote for closure? I mean, my guess is it's it's the same old song and dance that Republicans always do. It was his way of being able to tell his constituents that he supported it. And, you know, he voted to have it brought to the floor. Yeah. Uh, but in the end, he would have voted against it. I mean, it's, it's his way of trying to play both sides. But you're right. I, I think that's part of what was in Schumer's head. He, he allowed all 50 members of his caucus to vote yes on it. And, um, you know, I, I just think that the battle, you know, Ted Cruz thinks that the battle was won. You know, he had, he gave this big fiery speech and uh, I, I just couldn't think, I, I don't think anything could be further from the truth. I think that this is just merely the first battle. The war is still being fought and um, you know, we'll see what's going to happen. But I, I, I think that they're, they're trying to lull us into some complacency and I hope that people on our side are not going to be fooled by that. The, the left is relentless and, and they never just give up. I mean, so <laughs> well, no. not only that they don't give up, but I mean, you have to stop and think, why would they bring it for a vote? I mean, if it wasn't going to pass, why not just let it sit there and languish? What was the purpose of bringing it up for a vote? I mean, they control what comes up on the calendar. If Schumer didn't want it to come up for a vote, it wouldn't have come up for a vote. Well, I mean, he, again, he's, one thing they do is is use these votes as as fundraising mechanisms. Okay, that's one possibility. Actually, 
agitate for? I mean, just real quick. I mean, I was thinking this to myself before the show. I'm actually shocked that there hasn't been a barrage of left-wing crap. And maybe it's just been quiet. Maybe it's been under the radar. But I expected a lot worse at this point, given that the Democrats have a stranglehold on Washington. I'm just, I'm pretty surprised. Just wait for the lame duck session next year. Maybe, but why, why wouldn't they, why wouldn't they just try to get all that crap done now and then make the turn back towards the center heading into the next year's election? Well, they're trying to, I think. I, I think when Cinema and Manchin said they weren't going to nuke the filibuster, then they're, they're kind of dead in the water. I mean, I, what else are they going to do? I mean, do? I don't think they need the 50 plus for, or the 60 plus for everything. Um, yeah, they do. They do. They need it for everything. They can only do this budget reconciliation once or maybe twice in a year. And they've already done it once to spend a bazillion dollars on COVID yeah. relief. And it can only be budget related. So, you know, they can uh, Bush, the younger, uh, cut taxes in his first few months in office using bus budget reconciliation. I suppose they could use it to raise taxes um, if they wanted to do that. Uh, and, and get away with it if they could if they could put if they could get their 50 caucus members to agree um, they could use it to raise taxes and if you know if they could if they raise taxes you know on someone on anyone making like a million dollars and up I think they would get a lot of Republican crossover but they don't want to do that because that's their that's their bread and butter as people who make million dollars and up they want to stick it to the people who make between 200k and 600k right in there and I don't know whether there's a majority for it. I also think another reason, Mike, for them to wait for next year is if they can fool the people and if they can if they can win the election next year, which they think that they have a chance to do, they don't need to sneak it in during a lame duck. I think the lame duck is going to be their ace in the hole. If they get creamed in the in the midterm elections, they'll still pass everything that, that we're worried about between November and January. But they're hoping that they don't have to do it during a lame duck session. They're hoping that they just hold on and that they increase their majorities next year and that they can do it without, without doing it during the lame duck session. All right. Well, I know we have a bit of a hard stop. I think the one, the one thing we didn't talk about, I probably shouldn't open the can of worms, was the, uh, the fact that Google was found to have been financing some of the uh, research at the Wuhan lab. And not only that, but took, took steps to squash any idea that the uh, virus did come from the lab. And I think that's a pretty significant development. Okay, Mike, so that's a perfect segue as we close the show. If you have things you want to hear discussed on this show, please send an email to ejsshow at protonmail.com. Um, Excellent, excellent points people made. And again, I'm sad that we didn't bring up the HR1. That was a good call. So sorry we missed that. We can get back to it because, Ed, I think, unfortunately, you're probably correct again. It will be revisited. With that note, we'll be back next week, hopefully with a uh, full contingent, all the E and the J and the S at 4 o'clock next Wednesday afternoon. Thank you very much. Have a wonderful afternoon and evening. All right. Good week, everybody. <laughs>